So today's gratitude moment is not me thanking everybody for a podcast review, which I absolutely love and adore and look forward to reading. So keep them coming and thank you. But today's moment of gratitude is thanking all of the volunteers in our lives. I have been surrounded and mentored by these amazing leaders who have given of their time and talents to make organizations like Feeding Matters and Skisha and Dysphagia Outreach Project and National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders and DRS. They tithe their time and that's what affects change. But today's guest, Erin Jeffords, she is a volunteer that takes care of our senior citizens directly in the Midlands area through numerous organizations, especially Meals on Wheels. And I remember once when I was a little girl and my great-grandma was very lonely, how she had Meals on Wheels come to her home. And the fact that 25, 35 years later, I get to have a guest on who does that. One, it makes me miss my Nana. And two, it just cup runneth over moment. So if you volunteer and nobody has ever taken the time to tell you thank you, With my whole heart, whatever effort you were pouring yourself into, thank you. And everybody, enjoy the Almost Dr. Jeffords. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyDD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant, who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I was, I actually, I think I was the one that reached out to you and said, I want to be on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yes! So, <laughs> yes. I'm excited. Um, Okay, so like I know what the CBIS means. Oh, okay, yes. What your alphabet soup is. My alphabet soup, <laughs> yes. So I obviously I have a, um, a master's in rehabilitation science. I'm actually enrolled in a post-professional program, which I will hopefully finish in May. I'm presenting my doctoral capstone January. So doing my research in the spring and then hoping to finish up. It's been four long years <laughs> of finishing, but really excited to have my OTD finally. And um, I'm certified as a brain injury specialist. I worked with a brain injury population 
for several years uh, at a nas- at National Rehab Hospital in Washington, D.C. So really was interested in brain injury. And um, that's how I became interested in fall prevention, which you know about, was working with the brain injury population. And um, I'm also certified in modalities. That was what my other certification is. And so, yeah, my little alphabet soup. Um, so hopefully in May, it'll say... Aaron Jeffords OTD. So yeah, we're almost there. We're yeah, almost, almost there. there. And then I can re- retire from being a lifelong. I'll always be a lifelong learner, but um, I think this will be the last big school, you know, as far as um, things that I take on because it it, it yes. is a lot. It's a lot. Yes. No. I feel that I I want to go back for a PhD, and then every time I get close to, I'm like, but do I? Because I don't like homework. <laughs> So a lot of writing. So same with, you know, PhD, OTD, for any of the people that are listening, that are thinking about going back to school, you really become a professional writer. And if you feel like writing is something, research and writing is not something that you want to do, then maybe it's looking for other certifications. (laughs) It would be something I always, you know, recommend that people explore their options you know, before taking it on, because it is a lot. I could, I mean, financially, um, and then just the balance if you're working, if you're doing it while you're also working. So I know, I know you from a lifetime ago, but for folks that don't know you, can you talk a little bit about like what made you want to be an occupational therapist? And then like the theme for today is social determinants of health, but like, how did you go from wanting to be an OT to wanting to like focus on this specifically? So it kind of all, like you were saying, came full circle. So same for me is that I lived with my great grandmother growing up. I lived in a multi-generational household with my, um, my parents were divorced. So I lived with my mother, my grandmother and my great grandmother. So was, you know, always with my great grandmother. Um, she essentially kept me, you know, my mom was very lucky. I didn't have to go to daycare or, you know, she, if, if I was sick, I could stay home with her. And I just always had a bond with older adults. And so when I was in high school, I volunteered at a local hospital here in Columbia and or South Carolina, where we live. And I um, was like, a, they called them candy stripers. Then now they're <laughs> called like, yeah, they, that, they don't use that term anymore. They call them like junior volunteers. So I did that two summers in a row. It was a car, it's a cardiac hospital. So all the Uh, patients were older adults. And then in college, I did internships in a geriatrics class, a gerontology class that I was taking um, at nursing homes. So I I was kind of exploring in college what avenue I wanted to pursue working with older adults. And I wasn't really sure. So in my gerontology class, I was doing a internship at a skilled nursing facility, assisted living and one of the, they had a newsletter and they had me interview one of the older adults that resided in the community for the monthly newsletter. And she had an occupational therapist that had come that day. So she told me all how, about how the OT had helped her reorganize her closet so she could reach, you know, the items that she needed. She showed me the adaptive equipment, which is the reacher. Um, so that was the first time I really learned about OT. Because you, it's very prevalent to, you know, people talk about physical therapy and speech therapy. OT is one of those mystery, you know, all OTs will tell you nobody knows what we do. Um, so that was initially how I learned about it. And we are, for those that are listening, we do not just do the upper body or hands because that's another misconception. You know, people say, oh, you're an OT, you work with hands. Now, there are OTs that work with hands, but that. We work with the whole body. You know, we're a holistic profession and we help people participate in things that are meaningful to them. So this woman, the thing that was important to her was that she could stay independent and be able to, you know, retrieve her items and get dressed by herself and stay in her apartment and really not rely on having extra help because she wanted to be independent. And so that is... Um, kind of how I found out about it. And then <clears throat> I took a little bit of a sabbatical after college. I had some random jobs, um, really still trying to figure out what I wanted to do and went back to graduate school four years after graduating from my undergrad. And so 
that to me was a great life lesson because I felt like when I went back to grad school, I already had some work, you know, life skills, work skills. You know, I was 27 when I went back, which really is not old, but I was one of the older people in my cohort. But I just really felt like that maturity was a benefit. Um, So I always tell people, you know, you don't have to go right after college. You know, if anything, I think it looks better on your application if you actually go and pursue other things and bring those attributes to, you know, your graduate um, profession, so or being a graduate student. So that was kind of how I, you know, discovered OT, went back to OT school, and then always knew I wanted, I was one of the students, and I know you have a lot of students that listen, that knew what I wanted to do. You know, people come into the OT program, and they're like, I really want to work in pediatrics. But they may change their mind once they go out on a field work (laughs) and then they come back and say, you know, I really am interested in mental health or, you know, for me, nothing changed. Like I knew I wanted to work with older adults and, uh, you know, my field work experiences, I was always working with uh, adults, maybe not older adults, but an adult population and um, initially started in an acute care setting, then transitioned into an inpatient rehab setting. So more kind of that medical model. You know, I worked in the, what I always tell everybody, I started in a medical model, which is a great foundation if you want to work in the community, because most of the people that live in the community are coming from the hospital. They're coming from the nursing home. They're trying to prevent having to go to live in an assisted living. So it was really great. I've kind of, the pendulum has swung. So I'm, I do consider myself more of a community-based therapist than a medical model therapist now. And so, but that was kind of how I got there. Um, You know, community therapy is a little harder to navigate because the jobs aren't as cut and dry. You know, when you're getting out of school, you can get a job as an SLP, you know, in a hospital, in a nursing home, maybe working in education in the school system. But like thinking about, oh, I want to do community practice. Like, what does that look like? You know, so same for the OT field. You kind of have to carve. If there isn't a job, you kind of have to make it (laughs) happen. And that's kind of how I fell into um, working with Meals on Wheels and the the parent organization in Columbia that I work with is called Senior Resources. So started partnering with them in 2017. And it's just really become like my lifeline, you know, as far as how I partner and have built off of that working with other organizations and not-for-profits working in the community, but that was an area that I knew I wanted to practice in, but I almost had to like make it happen, if that makes any sense, because it's just not there. It's not like you look indeed and there's a job. You have to almost, you know, find the, the people, find that gap in practice and reach out to them and let them know, hey, like I'm a therapist and I want to do this. You know, how can we work together? So that's kind of how I got to where I am now. (laughs) I love that because this is a lot of grad students and a lot of SLPs. They go in thinking, I want to do medical. I want to do medical. I want to do medical. But like, it can be like in the SLP world, if you don't have a practicum and a medical site, you're not going to get a job in a medical site, but also the community-based clinicians. I honestly think we have the hardest job because we have no direct access access to medical records, you're flying blind, and you're also dealing with the crux of their need, the brutal reality of where our patients are, and life doesn't prep you for that. Like Unless you have had to navigate community-based support systems as a individual human or as a family member, then you may not be privy to what's available, right? And even in the PEDS world, we see that because 97% of my job is caregiver counseling and caregiver education. And that is how do I set them for success? Folks, we have talked about Maslow's needs, of um, Maslow's hierarchical needs, like that pyramid. But like, honestly, what we do is we prep them for that basic life support without being like attached to basic life support, but like, that's what we do for the community. And like, 
we could squirrel that way for like another 20 minutes, but like I'm going to focus this back to, it kind of segues nicely. Oh no, it's a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So like today, Aaron and I were like, what are we going to talk about? And I was like, you're phenomenal. Let's talk about like adaptability and positioning and like life skills. And she's like, social determinants of health. And I was like, I'm sold. (laughs) So like, let's go there. What is that? And uh, why is that important for like both of our professions? The social determinants of health, which I'm sure, you know, your listeners, if they're students, if they're new grads, specifically students and new grads, this is part of your curriculum now. You are learning about the social determinants of health, which are the things that affect our health that are not related to genetics. Um, and or diet, exercise. These are the other things that can affect our ability to participate. I say that as an OT and things that we love and also our health and our outcomes. So, I mean, what does that look like? It is your access to your medical care, okay? Your access to education, um, transportation. So, you know, a lot of those factors right there, I'll just kind of focus on those three initially. When you're thinking about, um, you know, working with your pediatric population specifically and, you know, do they live in a rural area or do they live in a more of a metropolitan area? Kind of like where you're serving your your patients or your clients, um, you know, those things can significantly affect their outcomes and their health. You know, so I think about the pandemic, for example, the pandemic really shined a light on the disparity of health. And if someone lives in a rural area, for example, they don't have the access to technology that someone that might live in a city has. So we think of the mindset of a therapist, and it's very easy for a therapist just to say, well, we'll just do virtual, we'll just do virtual, you know, we'll just, well, that's fine, you know, but this person may not have this client and their parents, they may not have a computer, they may not have internet access. Um, They may have internet access, but it might not be reliable because of where they're located. Um, You know, they may not be able to think about the from the access to medical care. You know, they may not live in an area where they have accessible facilities. You know, they may not have access to, you know, appropriate care, clinics, outpatient therapy, um, even a hospital. You know, they might be too far away from those things that can negatively impact their health. Or transportation, how are they going to get to these doctor's appointments, Um, you know, and the access to education? Maybe they're eligible for services, you know, as they're they're eligible for services in a school system, but are they, can they get to school, A, you know, and, you know, do they live in an area that, you know, if it's, let's say, it's, um, you know, somewhere where weather is an issue, you know, or, and they can't get to the school they need to get to. So there's so many factors that we don't think about as therapists because we live, I hate to say it, but there is like this privileged mindset of like, well, every, I have internet, everybody should have internet, or I have, you know, a car or, you know, if I don't have a car, we have a bus system. We know living in a city, we live in the capital of South Carolina, we have a very unreliable public transportation system where we are. So that is not something that families can rely on. So if you're a, a if you're a therapist working in an outpatient clinic and you're frustrated because you have a no-show and you're like, oh, you know, that family didn't show up, they never come. But have you ever really thought about like what it takes for that family to get there? You know, and like thinking about that, those are the things that they don't teach you in school. You know, we have to kind of learn on our own, like when we're out being therapists and working, but you don't see that breakdown in the hospital because in the hospital, you have everything that you need. You know, if your patient needs a test run, if your patient needs a medication, if your patient needs access to something, like everything is at your disposal. But once that person goes home, like you just said, there's that breakdown. They may not even have a phone. I mean, it is very common for me to go to people's homes recently, and they do not even have a mobile phone or a cell phone, you know, that they may rely on their neighbor who has a phone that lives down the street. Um, So I might have to call the neighbor actually to schedule my visit to let them know that they're coming. So I mean, it's like little things like that, that we just don't think about. And that 
I feel like we impacts their care and their progress and their ability to make gains and meet goals because it's very easy for therapists to have like a one mindset of like, well, they're not doing their exercises at home. And, and, you know, and mom and dad aren't being supportive and they're not coming to their therapy appointments and that's why they're not making gains, but kind of, okay, be devil's advocate a little bit and think about, well, why aren't they making their appointments? Why is it maybe mom is actually only reading on a first grade level? She might not have the health literacy skills to do the home exercise program that you're giving her. So there's so many factors that I feel like I would love for new therapists to be thinking about that will make that relationship with your clients. I say I say clients now more than patients, just more of a supportive relationship that you can build off of versus like, I'm the provider and you're going to do what I say. <laughs> and when it doesn't work, then it's your fault, you know, because that does happen a lot. And I mean, I've experienced it myself with my son. I probably shared this story with you a long time ago, but we had an occupational therapist. It was her way or no way. And I had, you know, Allie, my daughter had a lot of medical issues and I felt like there was a lot of things I couldn't do to kind of make at that point his therapy go as I wanted. And, and I kind of felt like there was this blame factor on me, you know, and it started to, there wasn't like that supportive of, it was just like, you do this. And if you don't, then there was no bend by her and, you know, it just didn't work out. So, you know, it's okay. Like if it doesn't work out, but that to me is just, that's a whole nother conversation. But when you butt heads with therapists, but I just feel like the social determinants of health are discussed. They're in the curriculum now. They're part of AOTA, you know, accreditation body. They're part of ASHA's, you know, everything is like embedded in the curriculum. But are we actually applying it when we leave school? You know, are we actually making that bridge from, I say, you know, the classroom to the clinic? Are we actually, you know, using the evidence to inform our decision making? Or are we just learning it because it's part of our curriculum and then not really thinking about it again? You know, so, so on this side of it, I got to be honest, there are brilliant researchers that we've had the pleasure of interviewing, right? And they'll tell you oftentimes when they're researching, they're researching, but they don't practice anymore. And so when we have that research to practice, but we're not going that second step of practice back to research, I feel like that's where we break down on this piece. And folks, to kind of give you the lay of the physical land of Columbia, Columbia sits in Richland County proper, right? So Columbia in and of itself is the state capital. So you would assume on the surface that the county that it resides in has full access to all of the things. And that couldn't be farther from the truth because lower Richland County is known for being a food desert for we just got approval this many years after the break of the pandemic for fiber optic lines to be run for the first time into lower Richland County. This is 20 two, 23 years into the 21st century. And they're just getting fiber optic lines out in lower Richland County and access for even academics for anything has been abysmal, right? So there are whole swaths of the state capital County where we can't even really actively engage in home health um, because clinicians just won't go there because of everything that kind of coincides with that level of, of need, poverty, and socioeconomic status. And that's horrible to say aloud, but there it is. So um, thank you, uh, Mr. Clyburn, who is our representative, because he led the initiative to get um, the fiber optic lines down there. Um, and I am forever grateful because that greatly improved. Once they're there, my patient's access to care because they can access at least online, um, which is, which is a start, right? Yeah. But, but that's it. How many of you listening right now grew up in at least a middle-class family and you grew up with plenty of food on your pantry? You never had to worry about the lights going off. Like if you have not done or observed an in-home or home health-based um, therapy session occur, you need to somehow schedule two days to go 
two days to go wherever your environment is because it will open your mind and open your hearts to the rest of this conversation. So, um, yeah. All right. That, those are those are my heartfelt opinions. Also, again, thank you, Representative Clever. Um, all right, take it away, lady. Where do you want to go next in our conversation? Because I love this stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, you just spoke about it because, like, that was one thing I didn't mention was so the populations that are more sensitive or affected by uh, social determinants of health are populations on the margin. You know, so you think of and and so who are you serving? That is the mark marginalization. So I work with older adults, but you're working with p- children with disabilities and the, dis- the and people with disabilities. Um, ABLE South Carolina is an amazing organization. They actually came to my campus to speak to my students, my occupational therapy students, about social determinants of health, specifically with the disabled population. And, you know, just kind of letting them know that, you know, they are the most, this, someone with a disability is more susceptible to these issues because of the lack of accessibility of all these factors. So, and that's kind of how it really is important, like for your listeners, because you're not working with, for the most part, typical developing children, you know, and if you are, you know, you're maybe working in an academic setting, but you're working with kids that, you know, are medic, like you have the experience medically fragile, you know, that, potentially have a lot of adaptive equipment and, you know, may rely on adaptive equipment and need a lot of adaptive, exactly what they need. And, you know, when I was living in Washington, DC, you know, we did have a great public transportation system, again, not always reliable, but better when I compare it to what I have now, you know, living here, but, you know, have the accessible vans, you know, that would be able to pick people up for appointments. But, you know, there's so many stories about, you know, the negatives of, you know, drivers, you know, they have to be waiting on the corner, waiting for their van. If they miss that window, the person's not waiting or they're waiting out in the cold for an hour, you know, to be picked up for their appointment. And, you know, so it's not a perfect system, but at the same time, I can see kind of the comparison of living in a larger city now to a, another city, but definitely not <laughs> what I would consider to be a big city. And um, we are just, not. yeah, no, 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 not at all. And uh, having that access to, you know, transportation. And so, you know, thinking about, you know, that to me is like so important because I didn't really speak about that, but, you know, just thinking of the populations that are marginalized based on, abilities, disability, race, sex, you know, all the things that can affect the access to care and the limited access to care, you know. So I specifically, as you know, work with older adults. And one of the things that we I worked on with some students last year in a research group was access to technology. So when you go to the doctor's office now, so speaking to if you're working in pediatrics, when mom goes to the doctor with their daughter to the hospital, they're given an iPad to check in. So that is very common now. That is very common across the country in how you check in in a hospital and or a doctor's office. You go to a kiosk, you enter in your information, you print off a piece of paper that tells you where to go, or you're given an iPad to check in. Okay, well, that is part of health literacy. Part of health literacy, which is, and technology is is kind of, part of that education piece and social determinants of health is literacy is technology literacy. So not just being able to, you think of literacy, you think being able to read, being able to write, but no, I'm thinking of how to use a computer, how to use an iPad. So that was something that the population we were working with, the seniors communicated, we don't know how to use an iPad. You know, they're giving us an iPad when we go to check in. I don't know how to use an iPad. So they wanted us, I say us, myself and my three research students to teach them how to use iPads. So we were fortunate enough with the organization that I worked with. They were able to use some grant funding. They were able to purchase four iPads. And my students came up with essentially a manual. And each week we worked on a different component of that manual to teach our client at the time um, or stakeholders how to use the iPad. So, I mean, it was simple as turning it on and off 
being able to turn the brightness on and off, being able to enlarge the font. I mean, simple functions that if you grow up using technology, you don't even think about. My seven-year-old knows how to use an iPad better than I do, you know? So, <laughs> I mean, she does. I'm like, um, it's so, all right. Goose is teaching me how to use Kahoot because I signed on to do a presentation via Kahoot. I don't know what a Kahoot is. And Goose was like, mom, just pay me and I'll program the presentation for you. And I was like, well, thank you, Lord. My 10 year old knows how to do the presentation. And I, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like that kind of stuff that, you know, so that's just an example of like what we did was, you know, again, as an, you know, no matter what therapy profession you work in, SLP, PT, OT, you're always going to write your goals based on that are client driven and accessibility is always a goal. So in that situation, it was accessibility to technology and being able to really learn how to use the, utilize the technology. So, you know, you think of your client, a pediatrics client, and like I mentioned, Maybe mom or dad or whoever their caregiver is, maybe they don't know how to use technology. So, I mean, that could be inhibiting them from completing the background information, filling out the the history forms, you know, giving you really an accurate picture of what you need to know as a therapist. So there's all these like little things that we just don't think about that can affect our outcomes and how we, I say we therapists, treat our patients. Or clients, uh, patient clients. For like what I'm thinking of, it first right out the gate when you give an iPad example is speech generating devices for assistive augmentative communication. Like I have so many grandparents or great grandparents raising children because of ETOH or neonatal abstinence syndrome or insert a reason that they're removed from the home and not in foster care, but placed with a caregiver, but the child is non-speaking and I need to empower the child to access accessibility, to access their daily routines, but then modeling and empowering the caregivers on how to utilize LAMP, um, language acquisition through motor planning on like a, a speech generating device, like how to put it in guided access so that they can't get out to check out what else is on the tablet. But that is, okay, folks, if you're listening, I know somebody somewhere is, but that's not part of my job description. How do I get reimbursed for that? Okay. So let me, let me ease and give you peace of mind. If you get on ASHA's super bill, there's a PDF. It's a super bill template for audiologists and for speech language pathologists. It's two different super bills. There are CPT codes specific for programming a device. When you are teaching and coaching a caregiver on how to access this technology, how to access communication devices, and you're programming it with them, that is a billable time. Now, whether or not your state has that embedded in the CMS manuals, that's why you become part of your state um, association, because I can tell you right now, we did not have access to that CPT code. Um, Hell, even five years ago here in South Carolina, we had to advocate to have that embedded because practitioners just didn't know that it existed, right? But this is one why you advocate at within your state association, why you advocate on behalf of your profession and why you advocate on behalf of your patients, because all of this circles back around to literally social determinants of health. That's a great example. I mean, and I taught an assistive technology class for the occupational therapy students. And it was so, into, I mean, as AT can be very intimidating, you know, because it's, it's low, I mean, low tech to very high tech. And granted, I had a lot of resources here. You know, I had a lot of people helping me and supporting me at USC at the University of South Carolina. But, you know, I I feel like it's almost like clinicians need to, you know, we almost have to be, we have to learn before we can teach, you know, so it's like, (laughs) we have to learn how to be able to do like you were saying, you know, before you can teach it. And, you know, that education piece, which you said is like 90% of what you do, you know, caregiver education and, and all that. Is and I feel like working in the pediatric population, you guys are probably stronger in that because you are working directly more with caregivers, you know. And you know, when I am working with a, a, an adult, 
you know, I, even if they have a caregiver, I'm always trying to direct my care more at the person, you know, versus the, the caregiver, but we still have to take that, you know, caregiver into mind and include them in our plan of care and include them in our goals and and everything that we're doing. But like, you're specifically like, you are asking the parent, like, what is important to you, you know, like, based on, you know, all the things they need to be able to do and knowing their, you know, background from a health literacy perspective is crucial, you know, (laughs) so, and how you're communicating what type of learner they are. Um, And, you know, it's really, so we have our, our, so like, Asha is, we have what's called AOTA for, it's like the um, American Association of Occupational Therapy, American Association, I can't even say it, um, Association of Occupational Therapy. And I used to call it it AOTA. And and I think you were the one that were like, no, Michelle, it's AOTA. I was like, are you sure? Because we got Asha. Don't y'all have AOTA? And you're like, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) AOTA sounds cooler because it sounds like Star. It sounds like something like Star Wars, like Yoda. Yeah. Um, But we have AOTA. And, um, you know, I feel like they, sorry, I forgot where I was going with this. I lost my train of thought for a minute. (laughs) Um, But this is now part of that, like at caregiver education and training. Oh, right. I was saying the handouts, ironically, I had a health literacy class as part of my postdoctoral work and I would take handouts from AOTA and dissect them, you know, handout and looking at, they're not written from a third grade level and lower, you know, they're, they're using words that have more than three um, syllables, you know, they're, they are, it's not written from, honestly, a um, health literacy lens. And so it's really interesting that the, you know, it's kind of like from a therapist perspective, we need to make sure that the educational materials we are giving the parents are written through a health literacy lens, you know, and are, and that's something we have to think about. um, Because it's, it's nice to be able to think about that when you're designing education and also when you're, you know, printing something out that's already, because I always tell my students and um, new grads, like, don't reinvent the wheel. If there's something out there that's great, use it. You know, you don't have to create something new, but make sure whatever you're giving them is credible, you know. Um, and, you know, obviously, they're like, oh, I got it from AOTA. I'm like, well, that's great, but let's look at it. You know, well, it's, it's busy. There's too many pictures. You know, I mean, it's, it's really hard to this, this to me is not a great document. Let's see if we can find something better, you know, and that's something that I enjoy doing with students because they, it's like, oh, I've really, you know, I've really thought about it like that before, you know, and um, making sure that the education that we are giving caregivers and in your situation, maybe parents is something that is from a health literacy standpoint, accessible to them. So, um, and you know, if they don't have the internet, we can't say, oh, you can go on this website and you can look this up. We need to make sure we have it printed off, you know, and we can give it to somebody. And I carry, I get picked on for this, but I carry a binder in my car with handouts because my, yes, I'm like, <laughs> my 85 year old client is not going to be going on the internet looking up. <laughs> her um exercises you know so I'm like they need to be you know uh there's there's lots of and I can send you like the uh there's a great website that kind of tells you the different it's almost like assessment tools that you use to dissect handouts but you know something like that but you just you know you want to keep it it's like what we're always taught keep it simple you know like keep it simple keep it very simple and um, use pictures that make sense. I mean, have you ever seen a handout of something and there's like a picture on it and you're like, that doesn't even go with <laughs> what the handout is about. Like, uh-huh. why is this, you know, hand, why is Where's- that on that handout? Like, I don't understand. Um, you know, two, so. three years ago, Asha's annual convention was at LA 
And it was when the new bathroom signs were coming out and there was this really long line and I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to use this bathroom. And I was all excited because I was like being cultured and worldly. And I was like, good Lord, this, this is taking forever. Turns out I was in line for the elevator and not for the bathroom, but I didn't know the difference between, because I thought it was like the unisex bathroom sign. I didn't know that that was the elevator sign. And then afterwards, one, I still had to pee. This is before I did pelvic floor therapy. So I like legit had to like pee pee. <laughs> but like, it was, it was, so sometimes even, you know, symbols and iconography in the community could be confusing for those of us that are determined to um, translate it. But like, yeah, you know what it means. Yeah. So it's just like things like that, that, um, so yeah, so that, I mean, that's a little bit about, you know, social determinants of health, you know, from, from my, from my lens as an OT, but I think it translates to all of the lenses of therapy practitioners, you know, that we have to, and educators, you know, and I mean, not just therapy practitioners, like if you're working in a school system and you're a school system based speech therapist, you know, looking at it through the lens of the, the early interventionist, if you're working in um, early intervention, you know, so everyone kind of has to view it through their lens and their discipline. But, you know, it's very important, I think, for therapists because we spend the majority of the time with the clients. You know, the other systems might be, and the teachers, obviously, but um, I'm thinking more in the community. It's the therapy practitioners are going to be the ones spending the bulk of the time with the client and or the the patients. So I had... A director once upon a time, we called him boss man, <laughs> Sean, Sean Shorting. He was my very first, um, uh, P, uh, like allied health rehab manager, right? Sean was as big as the door. Like the guy was the biggest PT I've ever worked with. And, um, oh, he was, he was so funny. You could always tell when he was stressed cause he would crank up Foo Fighters out of his office. Oh, like, I love it. I love, I love Foo Fighters. So I like, be like, I know I'd be like, Oh, the boss man's under the good. But like, anywho, he was the first person that had us. It was my first exposure. I mean, I was a CF. So like if your OT students are listening. So in the world of speech pathology, we get our bachelor's, we get our master's. After the conclusion of our master's, we have our clinical fellowship year, which is kind of misgiving because it's not necessarily a year. It's a minimum of nine months full-time practicing with like direct patient contact for like so many hours a week. But it ends up being, if you work in the public schools, a full school year, right? During that time, we're certified as a clinical fellow, and you have up to four years to meet all necessary hours and documentation requirement. But most people get it done within the first 12 months. After that, then you get your CCCs, your Certificate of Clinical Competence through ASHA. It's like basically your CF years like kissing cousins with like a residency, right? And I know OTs, y'all graduate, you just done ski, Right. It's supposed to help offer a little bit more structured mentorship when you're getting your toes wet, which is fantastic. But it was in my CF year. Sean had us sit down because our clinic had moved into a new building, right, at the hospital. And I did inpatient in the morning, ICU, med surge, all adults. And in the afternoons, I was the only speech for like 45 minutes in any direction. It was a really rural section of Virginia. It was down in Gloucester. And so... In the afternoons, I did outpatient from two years of age to adult end of life care, right? I had to wear every hat you're prepped for (laughs) in grad school. I mean, to go from like Arctic phenology to like head and neck cancer, you know what I mean? I once had a man do vodka oyster shots with his uh, (laughs) friends and he got the oyster stuck in his G-tube because he knew after his seventh stroke, he knew not to do a by mouth vodka oyster shot, but he put it through his G-tube and he came in and we had to walk wheel over to the yard (laughs) and get the oyster removed from his G-tube site. I was like, I cannot make my life up. Oh my gosh. But we sat down and we looked at simply accessing the rehab department from the parking lot. What could we do for our patients when they were trying to find it? Right. But like, because it was like tucked back on like the hospital campus. Right. But that is a, can you navigate? Can you read a map? Like how easily can you get up and down ramps? How easily can you access the the doorways? And, and the, it was 
literally eye-opening for me because I had not thought about how we engage in our world in that perspective because that's not taught to speech pathologists. And so folks, when you're looking at like, hey, our cancellation rate is um, abysmal, our productivity rate is low, like break it down step by step from the point that they you schedule or your scheduler makes that appointment to how do they get to you? What are all potential, um, the poopeth hitteth the faneth scenarios, right? But that's, OTs have like superpowers in this. Y'all are taught how to break that down. So how do we, how does an SLP that's never thought about, <laughs> what, what tips right, do we right. have for us? Yeah. I'll speak at OT language. So we talk about task analysis, you know, so task analysis is like you take the task and you break it down, you know? So you think about like navigation of, you know, being able, like you were saying, we'll just, we'll kind of make, simplify it and say like, okay, well they get to campus. Like you said, you know, someone gets to campus, but then they're late to their appointment. They're always 15 minutes late because they, there's no parking. Okay. Um, they can't figure out how to get there. Like you said, there's not correct signage. So what do you do? You go to your hospital administration and you say, listen, this is a problem. Like we need to work on the parking situation. Um, employees need to park off site and they can shuttle their little butts to campus. Okay. Like they don't need to have parking in the garage and sorry, you know, I'm sorry that you've been there for 10 years and you think you need that parking spot, but you don't, you know, like you can take the bus like I had to for so many years on campus. You know, you need to talk about, you know, you're the speech therapist. You're the ones that are great in accessibility from um, making sure the signage is correct. So, you know, that's kind of like find the problem. If people are communicating to you why they're having a hard time getting to the clinic, I'm just thinking on a micro level, like on campus, those are things that you can control. You can have influence in those things. You can't have influence really outside of it, you know, because if it's something like, you know, I don't have a car to get there. Okay, well, we can try to problem solve maybe some public transportation or um, have you thought about, you know, reaching out to this service that, you know, can pick people up and bring them to patients or if they do have the resources, you know, thinking about something like an Uber um, or, you know, in cities, hey, people still take cabs, you know, <laughs> so it's not, but, you know, thinking, you know, trying to help problem solve outside of, you know, well, what is that, like you were saying, what is the reason why people can't make it to their appointments? You know, is it because they just don't want to come or is it, you know, some things that are limiting their access that you can, and what can you influence and what, what is in your scope of things that you can obviously control, but there are some things, you know, life happens and, you know, there's an accident on the way, there's traffic, there's, you know, so there's things that you can't, they might not have enough money to put gas in their car to get there that day. And Maybe it's having that conversation of, look, like, I really want to keep you on my caseload, but I need you to communicate with me um, that you're having a hard time getting here because maybe it's one of those things like I might just need to book someone else in your spot. You know, like you can't I can't hold a spot, you know, so sometimes it's having those hard conversations that we just maybe we're uncomfortable to have as new grads and new practitioners of saying like. Obviously, we know you need the therapy, but at the same time, like if this isn't a goal, and that's another thing I always tell people, if people don't want to come to therapy, don't make them, you know, like if it's like, hey, I really don't want to come and I look, I dread this every week, you know, then maybe, hey, it's okay, you know, like it doesn't, don't force it. And obviously you can't do that with when you're working with children, but if you're working with maybe even a teenager or somebody that you do feel like has the decision-making ability to speak up for themselves, which I mean, kids can speak up for themselves, but I'm just saying like to control the fact that you see so many forced interactions in the therapy world, you know, that people that, you know, it's not working because they don't want to be there. <laughs> but like, okay. Also therapeutic plateau. Let's talk about that for two seconds because I, I had, I found a resource that I wanted to share, but we, 
my brother-in-law, for example, has um, Uncle Matthew. Uncle Matthew is um, 45 years old. He has autism, microcephalia, cortical vision impairment, CP, a thyroid condition, and he is piss fire and vinegar and sass and the greatest transformer collection I've ever seen in my life, right? Um, but he's he's been collecting transformers since they first came out. So like the man can retire with transformers. But like Uncle Matthew's baseline etiologies, he will always qualify for services. However, is it clinically relevant or has he hit a therapeutic plateau, right? And that's okay to say, and our children will hit that, our adults will hit that. And it's okay to say, or like for us, Goose has been in and out of OT over the years. He had a concussion really bad when he was um, at the end of kindergarten and it threw off his visual motor integration, right? Like his left eye was like rolling. So we did a lot of OT and also his penmanship deteriorated, but he's also a left hand. So like bless his little bones. So like we've done OT and then mommy's career, daddy's career, like takes off in a new direction. And I know my son's needs are important, but if I see him plateauing, And I talk to the OT and say, look, what can we focus on at home? Because right now we have this big project or whatever. And, you know, I've done this off and on for years and it's been a beautiful scenario for him. So those are variables, but there's, oh, bloody hell, I lost it. It's called findhelp.org. I learned about at ASHA this year in November, or this past year in November from some clinicians at Boston Children's Hospital. And All you have to do is put in your zip code. So I can put in my zip code 29205. That's the zip code for where we are in Columbia. And when I type it in, it pulls up, do I need help with food, housing, goods, transit, health, money, care, education, work, or legal? How cool is this? This is awesome. I'm looking at it right now. I've never seen this. This I had neither. And they were talking about like there's 1,954 programs currently available in our city. And when I was perusing it, like we were sitting there, they were talking about, honestly, I got so excited about the website that I lost attention for the rest of their presentation. (laughs) But like, I apologize. (laughs) Y'all did a great job. But like, this was phenomenal because- That's a social determinant of health. This is a resource that like my patients needs, that their caregivers need, especially when, what is it, up around Columbia College, they have the highest ratio of above knee amputations and diabetes in like the Southeast. That's terrifying. Well, and stroke. Yes. All the diabetes stroke, you know, all of our. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yes. But like that's because there's no fresh green vegetables easily accessible because there's no transportation and it's one big ugly circle. Yeah. And like you were saying, the food desert and all the, all the factors that factor in. This is awesome. I mean, this is, I mean, I want to, I'm going to play around on this today. I'm not going to get distracted with it right now. I'm like, oh, I got to get back. (laughs) I know. But like, that's when they told me, I was like, this is amazing. Game changer. Okay. But, but you and I, we sidebar before we got on and one of our sidebar was, um, social media. Oh yes. (laughs) So like, we've got like roughly like eight or nine minutes left. So can we go there for like, to like close because (laughs) I love, I love that. I love talking. I, so, um, I, I'm very active on social media. I love social media. Like I love, um, my Instagram is the OT advocate. I love social media. Um, I, you can look me up on my, my, uh, Instagram handle, but I, I do have a love hate relationship with it. You know, it's, there's really no in between. And, um, I think a few years ago when I really started getting active on social media and probably same as you, like, it was like, Oh, this is awesome. And like, I have connected with some of the coolest therapists that, you know, one of the one of the podcasters that I listen to, he's out of Australia, okay, that I listen to religiously, okay? And I just- Who is he? What is it? His name's um, Occupied. It's called Occupied. And so that's the name of his podcast, Occupied. And so I actually reached out to him and said, I would love to be on your podcast one day, like a shot in the dark, okay? And he responded and was like, sure, you know, so- what do you want to talk about? And I'm like, and I mean, that was like, wait, what? You know, like you want to, I mean, you want to, it, it, and it was just that kind of connection that 
you know, so we did a podcast on, um, I was able to talk about fall prevention because that's something, you know, I'm really interested in. And then we talked about, in, uh, at that point, he was doing a podcast on interviewing and for OT students. And I was like, oh, well, I would love to do that because I do these mock interviews with my students. And so anyway, I got connected with him and then I ended up meeting through that. I ended up meeting all these really cool therapists that I'd always like looked up to, you know, and, you know, read their um, listen to their podcast, use their resources. So for me, it was like this great networking thing. You know, it was like going to a convention and meeting all of your like people that are interested in the same thing you're interested in. And, and it's like such a great way to get ideas and, tri- but my problem with it, and, and then I want to hear your, your, your take is that <clears throat> there's a, there is like this fine line that you walk of what is appropriate and not appropriate to share on social media. And so in the community, I'm working with adults and not children. I'm working with older adults and I have their consent. I actually have consent forms that they sign um, if I'm going to share anything on social media. So like the not-for-profit that I work with, they are very um, supportive of kind of sharing things, you know, because it's great to kind of for publicity, like, hey, we're doing this program at the, and, and they're real funny at the um, the older adults at the Senior Wellness Center that I go to. They say, hey, put that on Facebook today. Will you put that on social? They like want it to be on social media. <laughs> but I'm very upfront of saying I have their permission, not just verbally, like I have a legal document that says this, the air giving consent. Um, and I think the line is blurred and people are sharing you know, their vulnerable clients um, without their permission. And in the pediatric world, that can be very dangerous because if mom or dad see that, they may not want their kiddo or kid, uh, and kid you know, it's that kind of stuff that I feel like it's, it's not malicious. It's not like some, it's not like someone's doing it with the intent of crossing a professional boundary of doing it. It's just almost like maybe they were never told like, hey, this is not appropriate. Um, and you know, it's, it's sometimes like, I think I was telling you, it's almost like we have to go back and be reactive as educators of like, Hey, I was noticing there's a trend of being a little bit of oversharing on social media of things that you guys just really need to kind of decipher of what's appropriate, what's professional and what's not professional in a sense of making sure that you are having consent being number one. And then my second issue, I mean, being consent and then also being appropriate. My second issue is we all have bad days and we all like to get on social media and maybe like vent a little bit, but it's almost become the extreme. And I always say misery loves company. And it's just like you get on there and it's just like negative, 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 negative. negative. And it's like, if you hate your job so much. Like, you know what? Like, there are so many great opportunities <laughs> to explore of in, in the therapy world. Like, people are, you know, we have, I mean, I can't even tell you speech it, where I am, like, where we are. Like, we we have a deficit of therapists, you know. We so. have a deficit of therapists and we have a deficit of current evidence-based practice because if I see anybody else shove something vibrating in plastic in somebody's yeah. mouth on the grounds that it's going to improve their silent aspiration, I'm going to lose what's remaining of my right eyebrow because yeah. that's where like I pluck when I'm nervous <laughs> or angry. So it's like being, you know, or if you're, you're just like, you know, you really don't like patient care. Like that's my thing too is I'm like, okay, you thought you wanted to do patient care and you hate it. Maybe it's time to think about research or working in um, advocacy or maybe even working in go, going back to school and pursuing something else or like just tr- pivoting your career, you know, and I just think social media is a great space, but we also, it's just become, sometimes I, I find myself like, what's happened? Like, why has it just become so negative? It's, it's just, you know, and everybody's like, Oh, it's really easy for you to say, like, you know, like you have a great job and you have this, I worked really damn hard for the job that I have, you know, like, and like, not only that, like, I, this was not an easy job to get. Like I was told no for the job that I have now years, you know, eight years. I mean, I think I was told no until I finally got a yes. So, you know, it's hard. I mean, cause I worked as an adjunct prior to becoming a faculty member. So at an assistant 
program and then now a master's program. So, you know, it's not, um, I don't take any of the opportunities I have for granted, you know, and, um, and I did like, I felt like I really did, you know, do the hard work to get here. So it's just hard when I see new grads that are like just starting out and they're just like, you know, oh, my patient didn't show up today. Oh, my life is so hard. And I'm just like, okay, well then maybe you need to call them on the way and tell them that you're coming and remind them, you know, or maybe you call them the day before and remind them. I mean, think of some strategies that are going to be supportive to your needs. Because look, I've learned that working in the community, you can't just show up. You got to call people and remind them, call them on the way. I call people on the way. Hey, I'm on the way to your house, you know, so, (laughs) you know, this is life. So anyway, so that's just nothing about social media. Like, I love it. I feel like the benefits outweigh the positives outweigh the negatives. And, you know, I don't see myself being one of those people that's like, oh, I'm done with it. You know, but I just do wish that, you know, like for every two bad things, maybe share something good. <laughs> like, you know, that's all. Like, Okay. So <laughs> my first recommendation for social media is everybody should go follow the page Round Boys because it's okay. miracle Ooh. animals. Oh, and it's on Instagram. I don't know if it's round dot boys or round boys, all one word, but it's spherical shaped, fluffy animals. And oh. it makes me so happy. happy. Everybody needs that in their life. I think yes. if we all looked at that page to start our day with or end our day with, everybody would be a better human. Okay. <laughs> Second, please stop using trauma triggering or negative eye catching to get likes because we don't know the trauma that your colleagues are carrying, and we don't know the trauma that the caregivers are coming at it with. So if you're presenting a research article or you're presenting a case study on social media, even if you have consent, when you present it in a potentially triggering way, you don't know the impact that it's going to have. And I understand that people do that for like, what is it called? Clickbait, the clicking of the baiting. But like, this is a problem. Also, please beware that posting pictures of a lingual frenulum that has been incredibly well documented that we're supposed to have a lingual frenulum in isolation and then saying, is this a tongue tie? This is not appropriate and also potentially a code of ethics violation because you're giving a diagnosis online without any thought process as to whether or not this is functional. And on that note, please come to ASHA 2023 in Boston, where we will have an invited talk on non-speech oral motor exercises, tethered oral tissues, and all the things that are not evidence-based. So I'm going to go there. Also, the reels, people, let's be honest. If you're getting on the tick of the talk and you're doing as um, Robin from Teen Titans Go says, a booty scooty, please be aware that your professional colleagues are observing the booty scooty. And, you know, I'm trying not to pass judgment, but like I totally right, right. pass judgment. And- well, it's like have your personal page and then a professional page. Like be you, but let's separate it. Like if you want to have that page and you're going to share it with parents and And that's the other thing, like you have to make sure for where you work. Like I had a policy at my employer at the hospital that I worked at that we were not allowed to be social media friends with our patients. Okay. There had to be literally a signed document that I had to sign that said like a year after, you know, like if you see them in another space, it's okay. But yeah, I mean, you know, so just like that boundary, we just have to be able to set boundaries for ourselves. That's all. To protect ourselves too, because you just don't want it to come back and bite you. Like, you know, and it it can, dude. Oh, but it can. But also, I'm sorry, just the booty scooties. Like, the booty scooty. Also, Goose has learned the booty scooty from Robin on Teen Titans Go. And I got to be honest, the the 10 year old, he can do a booty scooty. So, um, huzzah. Thank you, Teen Titans Go. Um, Okay. Erin, this was absolutely lovely. And I seriously have a note. I want you to meet my friend Renee Garrett from Virginia because she talks on health literacy and people were putting this in the universe because I think the two of y'all doing like an actual course together, I would, oh my God, because she's an SLP and you're an OT and like the amount of what you could put in the world. We can just do, yes. I would love that. Yes. Yeah. Put me up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, then everybody, um, thank you for tuning in. Um, check us 
out for non-booty scooty reels on <laughs> First Bite Podcast Instagram. Um, Erin is OT Advocate on Instagram. Yes, um, thank you. And then um, if you have any questions, please feel free to message us. And you know, we love it when you hit us up with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. So thank you for joining us today and yay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. Bye.